Thanks, Aaron. We'll be looking at uh, the pa- a passage in Isaiah, same, pas- same book that Jake spoke on last week. He and I were talking afterwards a little bit about the, the challenge in sharing that sometimes you try to give somebody a drink out of a fire hose, and I'll try not to do that this morning, but there's just so much. My name is Randy Armstrong. I'm a member at the church here. Betty and I have been coming here for about 18 months, and it's just such a pleasure to come to you this morning and share the Word of God with you. This is part two in a series on the hope of dawn, and we're going to be looking especially at the idea of the promised light that God promised through Isaiah about 735 years before Jesus was born. We just sang a few minutes ago a song, and I I hope as you sing, you think as you sing, what child is this? What child is this? I, I have 70 years to remember of things I've said, and it's even harder to remember the last few months, but I may have already said this before, but have you ever thought about the fact that there's only one person in the history of humanity that ever decided to be a human being? You and I are here. We didn't have any say in the matter. I mean, we may have had a say in continuing to be here, but we didn't have any say in being here. But this child we're going to look at, and we've heard this you know, every Christmas, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Do you know the context of that? It's in the context of, of all of human history. And this child that's given is the focal point upon which all of his human history stands. I'm not sure that's a good illustration or image, but you get the idea. It is the central point of all of human history. And so to answer this question, what child is this, is critically important. And this morning, I'd like for us to see this manger, this nativity scene, in the context of the darkness in which it came. A darkness that tried to destroy it. We don't talk much about part of the Christmas story, but the fact that every other boy under two years old in the area where Jesus was born was slaughtered in an attempt to put to death this child. This one child of all of humanity that chose to be born. And then the, the, the most amazing thing about the fact, not just that he's the only one who chose to be born, but he chose to be born for the express purpose of being executed for you and for me. Now, I don't know about you, but if I, had my, if I was doing my list of options, and I'm kind of a list guy, and if I was doing my options, okay, to be born or not to be born, here's the list. And the list says, okay, you're going to be executed. If you choose to be born, you're choosing to be born so that you can be executed, so that we can get rid of this darkness that has invaded humanity. It's just sobering to, to consider the depth of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ in coming as a human being. So let's dive into this passage in Isaiah chapter 8, get some historical context for the prophecy that Isaiah is going to give, that the Lord gives him. We're about 735 years before Jesus is born. 
Um, for you note takers, I think there's the outline of the sermon there, and we'll just go through the passage. What I'd like to do, Lord willing, is to go through the passage and look at what it meant in 735 B.C., and then how Jesus fulfilled that, and then what the implications are for us today. The historical situation, the northern uh, nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, and Syria had just attacked Judah in chapter 7, and they're trying to convince Judah's king Ahaz to join forces with them, because there's a bigger bully next door to Syria, which is called Assyria, and they're threatening to invade. And so, so instead of looking to God for deliverance, Ahaz decides, well, I don't want to get beaten up by these little guys, Israel and Syria, so I'm just going to go to the bigger bully, Assyria, and ask him to help me and get out of this jam. And Isaiah appears to him in in chapter 7 and says, be calm, relax, don't do anything rash. You know, Israel and Syria are going to be destroyed soon. And I'll give you a sign if you want. And Ahaz says, I'm not interested. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to go to Assyria and I'm going to solve this problem myself. And God's message to the king throughout the rest of chapter 7 and and 8 is Israel and Assyria are going to be destroyed within 65 years. And not only that, this guy you're looking to to help you, he's going to come and invade you. And they're going to be like flies all over the rocks everywhere. They're going to invade. And there's going to be disaster coming upon the land because you've insisted on doing things your own way. And then God speaks to Isaiah in chapter 8 about verse 12, and he tells Isaiah not to adopt the attitude of everybody else around him. He says, don't, don't fear what they're afraid of. Don't be in dread. Just fear the Lord. He's going to come, and he's going to be a place of refuge for some, and he's going to be a stumbling block for others. And so we we come into this passage here in verse 21, and I'm going to start reading in verse 20 because God is speaking to Isaiah and he's contrasting this idea of self-determination and self-reliance and figuring out things on on your own against doing what God tells you to do, even if it doesn't seem to make any sense, following the law of God and walking in the way that he wants you to walk. And so we start in verse 20 here. And I'm going to have you stand in just a moment. But in verse 20, he says, to the, to the teaching and to the testimony, they will not sp- if they will not speak according to this word, that is the nation of Israel and Judah, if they won't speak according to this word, the word of the Lord, it's because they have no dawn, no light. So will you stand with me and we'll read this passage. Isaiah chapter 8, beginning with verse 20, down through Isaiah 9, verse 7. This is God's word to us this morning. I'm reading from the ESV. They, that is the Israelites, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. 
For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Lord, these are your people. This is your word. You have a plan for us. You accomplished that plan for us in Christ. We see some of that, but we certainly don't see it all. Shine the light into our darkness this morning and help us to see. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So we don't start out too Christmassy this morning. We're talking about darkness, gloom of anguish. God is telling these people who have decided to do it their own way, that they are going to find themselves in a world of hurt, as it were. They'll pass through the land greatly distressed, verse 21, and hungry. And when they're hungry, they're going to rage against the Lord and their king. And they're going to look to the earth, distress and darkness, gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. There's two kinds of suffering, of darkness, that are talked about in this passage. The first is the darkness of the circumstances and the mental and psychological suffering that results when things aren't going too well in any situation. And this is a a terminology when we talk about darkness. This is very common in the Old Testament to refer to darkness as life when things aren't the way they're supposed to be. The psalmist in Psalm 143, verse 3, he says, The enemy has pursued my soul. He's crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. And if you read through the Psalms, you'll see, often you'll see references to darkness, both darkness of circumstances, but also a darkness of, of despair. Probably one of the most depressing Psalms, if you will, is I think it's Psalm 88, where that, close, that ends with, Darkness is my closest friend. He said, Lord, you've abandoned me. Everything's going wrong. What's going on? So this is an Old Testament concept that's very, that the Israelites, the people that were hearing Isaiah would have understood very well, this relation of darkness to difficulty and distress. And sometimes that it's unrelated to sin, but in this case, the darkness, notice at the end of verse 8, they will be thrust into thick darkness. God is going to actively put them in a situation of deep distress because of the fact that they've turned themselves away from him. We see that similar message given in Psalm 107 where the psalmist, time and time again, there's a cycle through the people did this and this happened and then God did this and things turned out okay. And in in Psalm 107 verses 10 through 12, talking about some who were disciplined, and it says, some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the word of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. 
they fell down with none to help. The darkness that sometimes comes in spite of us, but there's also the darkness of circumstances that sometimes come because we've chosen to turn our back on what the Lord wants us to do and what he's told us to do. So there's the darkness of circumstance that Isaiah is talking about here, but there's also another darkness, and that's the darkness of the heart. I I read verse 20, the last part of verse 20, before we stood and, and read together, but it talks about these who have no dawn because they won't speak according to the word of the Lord. They've rejected the light. They have no light because they've rejected the Lord. It's a heart without an understanding of God and his ways, either intentionally or unintentionally. And notice in verse 21 that in the midst of this hunger they have and this distress in verse 21, what do they do? The last part of verse 21, they speak contemptuously against their king and their God. So they're not only in a bad way, they're in a bad way and they're mad at God and their king because of what's happened to them. They have a heart that is not right toward the Lord. And this is the normal result of what happens when we don't respond to what we know of God. Steve, a few weeks ago, talked about the downward spiral of self-reliance and destruction. And that's what happens when we rely on ourselves and not on God. We just go into a tailspin and the darkness gets greater and greater. But it's a darkness of the heart as well, perhaps, as a darkness of circumstances. This is a a normal result of not responding. We read about that in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. It's talking about creation in general and just the course of human history. And it says, although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. It's one thing to have dark circumstances, but it's even more serious to have a heart that is darkened. Darkened in their understanding, Paul says, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of their hearts. And that was Israel's situation. And Isaiah says, the Lord says through Isaiah, because you've chosen to go your own way and reject the light that you have, that I've given you, the little bit of light that I've given you in the law, which points forward to the Messiah, then there's going to be more and more darkness for you. And this is what happened. Within just a couple of years, the Assyrians invaded and the darkness deepened. Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, invaded Syria and Israel in about 734, which is just a year or 18 months after this prophecy. And within another year and a half, Ahaz finds this king of Judah who thought he was doing such a smart thing by going directly to the big bully Assyria. He finds himself paying tribute to them. And the the sobering consequences of the people rejecting the light that God had given them just became more and more intense. And I think we, if we really want to appreciate the, the prophecy that Isaiah has given here by the Spirit of God, we have to really appreciate the darkness in which it was given. We live in a country, we are so blessed in this country. In this age, we live better than the kings lived a few centuries ago. We eat better than anybody's eaten throughout the course of all of human history. We are so blessed, and it's kind of hard for us to to under, you know, okay, the light has come, okay. We don't, 
we don't understand, I think, until we get into the scriptures and, and appreciate the darkness into which this light came, just how wonderful this prophecy is. And here, this is what, if we, if we focus on this, we, we can appreciate better the first word in chapter 9, in verse 1. But. In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, this is a chapter in verse 8. The Hebrews don't even, the Jewish Bible doesn't even start chapter 9 until the verse after verse 1. Because they're so conscious of the contrast here between this is what you did, this is the darkness that's going to happen, but in the latter time, right, there will be no gloom for her, her who was in anguish. In verse 22, it talked about the gloom of anguish in the dark period. But in verse 9, there'll be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, the time of judgment upon Judah and Israel, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So he's contrasting two times in Israel's history, the former time and the latter time. And it's interesting how precise he is about where this prophecy is going to be fulfilled. I think there's a map here, right? We've got a map. Thanks to Steve, he got me a map so I can show you here. It's interesting that the precision geographically that we find in verse 9, or in verse 1, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, and then it's repeated three more times. The way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, on the map up on the top, look at the yellow ones, and you can see Naphtali and Zebulun there, okay? It's a specific area in the northern part of the northern kingdom it was a traffic. There were Jews and non-Jews all over the place. It was a commercial area. There was a lot of stuff going in and out of that area all the time. And it's interesting that the prophecy focuses specifically on this geographical area of the nation of Israel. And if you know your Bible geography at all, you know there's a little town there called Capernaum and Nazareth that happens to land in that Naphtali area of the map. So we have a little foreshadowing there of what's going to happen. But what's going to happen in this latter time? He talks about making glorious the way of the sea. And the contrast there in verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And that phrase, deep darkness, is a uniquely Hebrew phrase, the shadow of death. And you probably remember that from Psalm 23 and some other references in Scripture. An area where it's as if death just cuts the light out and there's no hope at all in what's going on. But it's in that area, those who walk in that area and dwell in that area, that the light is going to shine. Now, what is he talking about, a light? Now, we know it's not a physical light. And yes, we know it's going to be Jesus, right? We're like the kid in the Sunday school class when the teacher asks him a question. They ask a question, now, what has four legs and a big bushy tail? And the kid goes, it sounds like a squirrel, but I know the answer is supposed to be Jesus because <laughs> I'm in Sunday school. But, so we know the answer is going to be Jesus. But what is the light in terms of, of their, what they're talking about and what they're thinking about seven centuries before Jesus even came? And we get a hint of that in other areas if we look through the Psalms again and keep coming back to the Psalms to get the, the Hebrew viewpoint of that. But especially in Psalm 80, at least three times, there's a phrase that says, Lord, make your face to shine upon this. 
It's talking about getting out of the difficulties they're in. Lord, make your face to shine upon this. So in the context here, it's this idea of the light of God's face shining on the people. It's this idea, not of a physical light, obviously, but of God changing their circumstances. And the the joy that results in verse 3. What is in the context here? It seems to be, well, let's just look. Verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now, you and I would pick out different examples, but at that time in history, the two things that made a nation the happiest were that the harvest came in because you didn't have a Fred Meyer or a Safeway or an Albertsons or a Costco to go to to get your food. If the harvest didn't come in, there wasn't going to be anything to eat. So there was a lot of joy around harvest time because it meant you at least had something to eat for the next few months. The the enemy hadn't come in and wiped it out or burned it or the drought hadn't kept it from growing. So their joy was connected to this idea of, oh, okay, things are going to be better. And then the other one, we don't do this too much today, but dividing the spoil. There's a lot of conflict between people groups. And if you won the battle, you got to take their stuff home with you. So it's, it's an, an idea of prosperity, of life getting better. So for them, it was the harvest and dividing the spoil. For us, it might be the new job or an unexpected Christmas bonus or a gift from somebody, something that improved your situation. But this is the joy. This light coming produces this joy. But where does this joy come from? If we continue in the passage, you're going to see there's three fours. They're joyful. They're rejoicing. Their joy is increased. Four. And verses four, five, and six each start with the word four. And it's going to explain why they're so joyful. For, first of all, the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. You remember Midian, right? You may not remember Midian, you might remember Gideon. Gideon was the guy with 300 people who went down and, you know, they broke the thing and shouted. And the Midianites who cut were as sand on the seashore, they were all of a sudden killing each other and, and the nation was delivered. They had relief. And that's, that's the imagery here. This is what's happened. The yoke and the staff and the rod, these are instruments of oppression. These are instruments of slavery. Put a yoke on somebody's back or an animal often, but sometimes even people to pull things against their will. The staff for the shoulder, that's what you use to make them do what they were supposed to do. And the rod of the oppressor, this was the corporal punishment vehicle. But you've broken all of these. And notice it's you. He's speaking to the Lord. Isaiah's speaking to the Lord as he's looking at this prophecy. Uh, Just a little parenthesis here. If you're using NASB, all these verbs are in the future tense. These things will happen. ESV has it in the past tense. But when you're a prophet, all the times kind of get jumbled up. And he's speaking in the past tense, though. He's looking ahead hundreds of years. But in his mind, it's happening right there, right now. NESB is probably more accurate in the sense that it will come after Isaiah. But in Isaiah's mind, he's seeing it as something already accomplished, which in fact is the way God is seeing it as well. 
So the first reason for their joy is that their oppression, all the instruments of oppression have been broken. But not only are the instruments of oppression broken, in the next verse we see that the oppressors themselves are done away with. Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. It's all wiped out. It's all taken away of. And so in these two, first two fours that we see, the explanations for the joy of the people, it's that the oppression that they were under, this darkness that was going to at first of all be Assyria and later on would be Babylon and then the Persians, all of that oppression would be done away with. But those two fours are nothing compared to the third one that we find in verse 6. And here we get to our Christmas passage. Okay? They're joyful because the yoke of their burden is broken, because all the garments of war have been burned as fuel for the fire, because for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And now we find ourselves face to face with this prince this child, this son. Now, it does speak about a baby, and Steve was talking last week with me a little bit. Is, you couldn't make this up. Deliverance. So what's the object of the deliverance? So well, it's this baby. And there is that aspect to it. But it's, it's only deliverance because this baby became something else. I shouldn't say became something else. It grew up. And became a king. And I think in this child born, son given, there's a sense of the infancy of this being at first, but also the idea that this son is a son of David, as we'll see in verse 7. Ahaz was a son of David, but he wasn't doing a very good job. In fact, he was doing a terrible job. He was leading the people astray. He was making them look at something else other than the Lord who had given them what they needed to point them to their need of Christ. And they were rejecting all of that. But there's going to be deliverance. Light's going to come. There's going to be another child, a son. And let's look at a little bit at this son. First of all, he's going to take responsibility, the responsibility of governing. The government shall be upon his shoulder. He is going to rule. Now notice that the focal point of this joy of the nation is not a new program. It's not a group of principles. It's a person. And this is critical. The minute we get our eyes off the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, even focusing on good moral principles, we've stepped away from the deliverance, that, the light that God has given us in his son, Jesus Christ. What, what's he going to be like? Now it says his name shall be called... And for the Hebrew person, your name and your essence were the same. You are called who you are. Remember Jacob? Heel snatcher. Deceitful man. Thankfully, God changed his name later to Prince of God. But he didn't, at the beginning, he was called what he was when he grabbed Esau's heel before he ever even came out when he was born. But we're going to look here at some of the, the names of this son, this child, to see what he's going to be like. First of all, wonderful counselor. He's going to have wisdom that inspires awe. He's going to be a mighty God. Now, sometimes you would call your king a god in that context. So it could be just that he's very powerful. But we know that here in this context, not only is he powerful, 
He will be God himself. The everlasting father, not to be confused with the father in the Trinity, but to the Hebrew mind, if you own something, you were called the father of it. And so here we have someone who is the one who possesses immortality. And then Prince of Peace. And here I have a little bit, a a couple quotes here about the word peace. Because for us, when we say Prince of Peace, you know, peace on earth, goodwill to men, we think of, okay, at least people will stop fighting, you know. People on YouTube will behave themselves and or Twitter, Instagram, wherever you go. I'm on YouTube. I'm not that advanced. But we think of absence of conflict, and that's a part of it. But do you want to put up the Shalom quote there? Susan Perlman, she's with Jews for Jesus, says, this word Shalom, this Prince of Shalom, the ancient Hebrew concept of peace rooted in the word Shalom meant wholeness, completeness, soundness, health, safety, prosperity, carrying with it the implication of permanence. And then I think I've got a quote by Ravitsky there too. He adds this, circumstances unblemished by any sort of defect. This child was going to be the prince of shalom. The way life's supposed to be in every area. No defects. Health, safety, prosperity. So not just getting the bad guy off your back, but everything in life is the way it was meant to be. And this reign that this prince is going to have is going to be dynamic because of the, verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, shalom, there will be no end. It's going to be eternal from this time forth and forever. And it's going to be a kingdom of, that's established and upheld with justice and righteousness. Can you imagine living in a place where every governmental decision was in accord with the laws of God and every interaction between people was the way God intended it to be. And don't kid yourself, your political party is not the expression of that. It's just different areas where we go and focus on ourselves. So this was their promise. This is going to be great. This is going to be perfect. Let's bring him on. Let's bring him on. But how do, we, how do you know this is going to happen? I mean, if you're there in the 8th century BC and you're looking at all these threats around you, Ahaz is certainly not going to make it happen. And some little kid, surely, that's, he's not. How is this going to be happening? And the key there is at the end of verse 7. And I'd love to just spend all day just on this phrase. But the zeal of the Lord of the hosts, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Notice there's no commandments in this passage. All these promises, this is God's idea. He's the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, literally. He's going to make it happen. I looked up zeal, because a lot of times I think I know what a word means, and I kind of do, but then I look it up, it's like, oh, yeah, it means more than that. So I looked up zeal, great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an objective. So basically, God's promise through Isaiah to the people of this Prince of Peace, this Prince of Shalom that was going to happen, this perfect living condition. 
is going to happen because it's God's objective and he is energetically and enthusiastically going to bring it to pass. Do you ever think about God in that concept? In that way that his plan of salvation that he accomplished in Jesus Christ is something that he is enthusiastic about and he is pouring all of his energies in it and since he has all energy, how could it go wrong? How can you count on it? Because it's him. It's not us. This was the future that Isaiah saw. This was the future he declared to the people. This is the future of the people that is written down for us. A coming time of darkness that would get worse and worse, but then finally a time when the light would shine. Now, our Jewish friends say that King Hezekiah fulfilled the prophecy. And it's true that a few years after this, Hezekiah, Ahaz's son, was a child born, a son of David. And he did, when he was king, there was a night when 185,000 Assyrians were killed in one night. But you keep reading through the rest of this passage in verses 6 and 7, and you know that Hezekiah didn't measure up to all the things that God had prophesied would happen sometime in the future. So, in fact, over a little over 100 years after Hezekiah's victory, um, the temple was leveled. The walls of Jerusalem were torn down. The people went into exile. They did come back about 70 years later. But there were centuries of misery that followed, centuries of darkness that followed because the people that God had called out for himself had rejected the light that he provided for them. And they were still sitting in darkness. But... The remnant, those who kept their, maintained their faith in God were looking forward to this day when this child would be born. And so as we come to the New Testament in, in Luke chapter 1, we see that Zechariah, who's John the Baptist's father, when John the Baptist is born, Zechariah speaks by the Holy Spirit. And look at what he says in Luke chapter 1, verses 68. And keep in mind this Old Testament setting here that we looked at in Isaiah Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him, all our days. And then he turns to his little baby son, who's only a few days old. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And then here's the phrase that brings us back to the light darkness motive. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The moment of final fulfillment was fast approaching and John would soon announce the coming sunrise. The light was almost here. And so as we come to Christmas again this year, we come to the fulfillment of this promise, the reminder of this promise that was given. And I always like it when the Bible tells you what a prophecy means. Because then I know we've got it right. And so in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus, as he begins his ministry, we read this in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. Now when he, that is Jesus, 
heard that John had been arrested. He withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went to live in Capernaum by the sea, where in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Why? So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has shone. He is the light shining in the darkness. He is the son of David that was given. He said in John twelve forty six, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. He's the wonderful counselor. The people said in Matthew thirteen fifty four, where did this man get this wisdom? And Paul tells us in Colossians that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's the mighty God. He's the everlasting Father. He said in John 8, 12, I'm the light of the world and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He is the Prince of Peace. We have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with each other. He's divided the wall of hostility between Jew and non-Jew. We read that in Ephesians chapter 2. He is the Prince of Shalom. He is the one who makes everything right. Now, we know everything's not right yet, but Jesus started his work where it had to begin. He dealt with the worst darkness first, and that is the darkness of our heart. We read in Hebrews 2, 14, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that's the devil, and deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's that oppression we were talking about. It's interesting when he tells Paul, I want you to go speak to the Gentiles. He says, I want you so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. I don't know if that's me doing this or what. But not only do we have forgiveness of sin, through our identification with him in his death and resurrection, sin's power over our heart has been broken. We no longer walk in darkness. Romans 6, 6 tells us, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so we would be no longer enslaved to sin. So by his sinless life and his death and his resurrection from the dead, God's made it possible for us to change allegiances and move from darkness to life. Just three verses here. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Once you were darkness, Paul says, but now you are light in the Lord. And now as he's beginning to work in the hearts, he's set us free from sin and teaching us what it means to walk in the light. He's preparing the citizens of this new kingdom that will never end so that they'll be fit to, to live in it once he brings it to pass physically. Everything wrong will be made right. All suffering will cease for those who trust in him. Revelation tells us he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, 
for the former things have passed away. Remember in Isaiah 9? In the former time, in the latter time. The former time is the time of mourning and crying and pain, but the latter time is coming because that baby came and came to die. So at Christmas this year, and the worship team can come up and get ready. Remember, you'll never really appreciate the significance of the manger until you come to grips with the darkness that preceded it. The manger leads to the cross. The cross leads to the empty tomb. The empty tomb leads to the throne in heaven where they sing a new song saying to the Lamb, the Son, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. And once you see him as he really is and realize what he's done, your heart can just overflow with gratitude for what he's done, confidence because this is his idea, not your idea, expectancy for what's going to come in the future, and wonder at who he is. And we're going to close with a song that we're going to sing to each other. We're going to encourage each other to behold the wonder of this king. Let's pray. Father, take your word. Make it alive to us. I pray for those who are, have not yet come to you, that they might see you as the light and turn to you. And I pray, Father, that you would teach each of us by your Holy Spirit what it means to walk by faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Steve said a couple weeks ago, your problem's not your circumstances. It's what's going on in your heart. If you haven't ever come to the light of Jesus Christ, we encourage you to talk to somebody today. If you came with somebody, talk to them. They can point you to someone. If you know someone else here, please feel free to talk to them. There'll be people in front to pray with you about that or anything else you desire prayer for. But I just encourage you as we go this week to go rejoicing in the fact that it's been taken care of. The enthusiastic, energetic intention of God is to bring you into the light. And he's going to do it. And let's look to him for that. You're dismissed.